Part Two of Sherlock Holmes and the Adventure of the Speckled Band. One moment, said Holmes. Are you sure about this whistle and metallic sound? Could you swear to it? Well, that was what the country coroner asked me at the inquiry. It is my strong impression that I heard it. And yet, among the crash of the gale and the creaking of an old house, I may possibly have been deceived. Was your sister dressed? No, she was in her nightdress. In her right hand was found the charred stump of a match and in her left a matchbox. Showing that she had struck a light and looked about her when the alarm took place. That is important. And what conclusions did the coroner come to? He investigated the cause with great care, for Dr. Roylott's conduct had long been notorious in the country, but he was unable to find any satisfactory cause of death. My evidence showed that the door had been fastened upon the inner side, and the windows were blocked by old-fashioned shutters with broad iron bars, which were secured every night. The walls were carefully sounded, and were shown to be quite solid all around, and the flooring was also thoroughly examined, with all the same result. The chimney is wide, but is barred up by four large staples. Oh, it is certain, therefore, that my sister was quite alone when she met her end. Besides, there were no marks of any violence upon her. How about poison? Oh, the doctors examined her for it, but without success. Now, what do you think that this unfortunate lady died of, then? It is my belief that she died of pure fear and nervous shock. That what it was that frightened her, I cannot imagine. Were there gypsies in the plantation at the time? Yes, there were nearly always some there. Ah, what did you gather from this allusion to a band, a speckled band? Sometimes I have thought that it was merely the wild talk of delirium. Sometimes that it may have referred to some band of people, perhaps to these very gypsies in the plantation. I do not know whether the spotted handkerchiefs which so many of them wear over their heads might have suggested the strange adjective which she had used. Holmes shook his head like a man who is far from being satisfied. These are very deep waters, said he. Uh, pray go on with your narrative. Two years have passed since then, and my life has been until lately lonelier, lonelier than ever. A month ago, however, a dear friend, who I am known for many years, has done me the honour to ask my hand in marriage. His name is Armitage, Percy Armitage, the second son of Mr. Armitage of Cranewater, near Reading. My stepfather has offered no opposition to the match, and we are to be married in the course of the spring. Two days ago, some repairs were started in the west wing of the building, and my bedroom wall has been pierced, so that I have had to move into the chamber in which my sister died, and to sleep in the very bed in which she slept. Imagine, then, my thrill of terror when last night, as I lay awake, thinking over her terrible fate, I suddenly heard in the silence of the night the low whistle which had been the herald of her own death. I sprang up and lit the lamp, but nothing was to be seen in the room. I was too shaken to go to bed again, however, so I dressed. As soon as it was daylight, I slipped down, got a dog cart at the Crown Inn, which is opposite, 
and drove to Leatherhead, from whence I have come in the morning with one object of seeing you and asking your advice. You have done wisely, said my friend. But have you told me all? Yes, all. Miss Roylott, you have not. You are screening your stepfather. Why, who, what do you mean? For answer, Holmes pushed back the frill of black lace which fringed the hand that lay upon our visitor's knee. Five little livid spots, the marks of four fingers and a thumb, were printed upon the white wrist. You have been cruelly used, said Holmes. The lady colored deeply and covered her own injured wrist. He is a hard man, and perhaps he hardly knows his own strength. There was a long silence, during which Holmes leaned his chin upon his hands and stared into the crackling fire. This is a very deep business, he said at last. There are a thousand details which I should desire to know before I decide upon our course of action. Yet we have not a moment to lose. If we are to come to Stoke Moran today, would it be possible for us to see over these rooms without the knowledge of your stepfather? As it happens... He spoke of coming into town today upon some most important business. It is probable that he will be away all day, and that there will be nothing to disturb you. We have a housekeeper now, but oh, she is old and foolish, and I could easily get her out of the way. Excellent. You are not adverse to the strip, Watson? Oh, by no means. Then we shall both come. Oh, what are you going to do yourself? I have one or two things which I would wish to do now that I am in town. But I shall turn by the twelve o'clock train so as to be there in time for your coming. And may you expect us early in the afternoon. I have myself some small business matters to attend to. Oh, will you not wait and breakfast? No, I must go. My heart is lightened already since I have confided my trouble to you. I shall look forward to seeing you again this afternoon. She dropped her thick... Oh, <clears throat> sorry. No, I must go. My heart is lightened already since I have confided my trouble to you. I shall look forward to seeing you again this afternoon. She dropped her thick black veil over her face and glided from the room. And what do you think of it all, Watson? asked Sherlock Holmes, leaning back in his chair. It seems to me to be a most dark and serious business. Oh, dark enough and sinister enough. Yet, if the lady is correct in saying that the flooring and the walls are sound, and that the door, window, and chimney are impassable, then her sister must have been undoubtedly alone when she met her mysterious end. What becomes, then, of these nocturnal whistles? And what of the very peculiar words of the dying woman? I cannot think. When you combine the idea of whistles at night, the present of a band of gypsies who are on intimate terms with this old doctor, the fact that we have every reason to believe that the doctor has an interest in preventing his stepdaughter's marriage, the dying allusion to a band, and finally the fact that Miss Helen Stoner heard a metallic clang, which might have been caused by one of those metal bars that secures the shutters falling back into its place, I think that there is good ground to think that the mystery may be cleared along those lines. But what, then, do the gypsies do? I cannot imagine. I see many objections to any such theory. And so do I. It is precisely for that reason that we are going to Stoke Moran this day. 
I want to see whether the objections are fatal, or if they may be explained away. Oh, but what in the name of the devil? The excitement had been drawn from my companion by the fact that our door had been suddenly dashed open, and that a huge man had framed himself in the aperture. His costume was a peculiar mixture of the professional and of the agricultural, having a black top hat and a long frock coat and a pair of high gaiters, with a hunting crop swinging in his hand. So tall was he that his hat actually brushed the bar of the doorway, and his breadth seemed to span across from side to side. The large face, seared with a thousand wrinkles, burned yellow with the sun, and marked with every evil passion, was turned from one to the other of us, while his deep-set bile-shot eyes and his high, thin, fleshless nose gave him somewhat the resemblance to a fierce old bird of prey. "'Which of you is Holmes?' asked his apparition. "'My name, sir, but you have the advantage of me,' said my companion quietly. "'I am Dr. Grimsley Rollott, Stoic Moran.' "'Indeed, doctor,' said Holmes blandly. "'Pray take seat. I will do nothing of the kind. My stepdaughter has been here. I have traced her. What has she been saying to you?' "'It is a little cold for the time of the year,' said Holmes.' "'What has she been saying to you?' screamed the old man furiously. "'But I have heard that the crocuses promise well,' continued my companion imperturbably. "'Ha! You put me off, do you?' said our new visitor, taking a step forward and shaking his hunting crop. "'I know you, you scoundrel! I have heard of you before. You are Holmes the meddler!' My friend smiled. "'Holmes the busybody!' His smile broadened. Holmes, a Scotland Yard jack-in-office! Holmes chuckled heartedly. Your conversation is most entertaining. When you go out of the closed door, for there, when you go out, close the door, for there is a decided draught. I will go when I have had my say. Don't you dare meddle with my affairs. I know Miss Stoner has been here. I traced her. I am a dangerous man to fall foul of. See here! He stepped swiftly forward, seized the poker, and bent it into a curve with his huge brown hands. See that you keep yourself out of my grip, he snarled, and hurling the twisted poker into the fireplace, he strode out of the room. He seems a very amiable person, said Holmes, laughing. I'm not quite so bulky, but if he had remained, I might have shown him that my grip was not much more feeble than his own. And as he spoke, he picked up the steel poker and, with a sudden effort, straightened it out. Fancy his having the insolence to confound me with the official detective force. This incident gives zest to our investigation, however. I only trust that our little friend will not suffer from her imprudence in allowing this brute to trace her. And now, Watson, we shall order breakfast. Afterwards, I shall walk down to the doctor's commons, where I hope to get some data which may help us in this matter. It was nearly one o'clock when Sherlock Holmes returned from his excursion. He held in his hands a sheet of blue paper scrawled over with notes and figures. I have seen the will of the deceased wife. To determine its exact meaning, I have been obliged to work out the present, present prices of the investments with which it was concerned. The total income, which at the time of the wife's death was little short of £1,100, 
is now, through the fallen agricultural prices, not more than £750, each daughter can claim an income of £250 in case of marriage. It is evident, therefore, that if both girls had married, this beauty would have had a mere pitiance, while even one of them would cripple him to a serious extent. My morning's work has not been wasted, since it has proved that he has the strongest motives for standing in the way of anything of the sort. And now, Watson, this is too serious for dawdling, especially as the old man is aware that we are interested ourselves in his affairs. So, if you are ready, we shall call a cab and drive to Waterloo. I should be very much obliged if you would slip your revolver into your pocket. And Eileen's number two is an excellent argument with gentlemen who can twist steel pokers into knots. That and the toothbrush are, I think, all that we need. At Waterloo, we had fortunate in catching the train to Leatherhead, where we hired a trap at the station inn and drove for four or five miles to the lonely, lovely Surrey lanes. It was a perfect day with a bright sun and a few fleecy clouds in the heavens. The trees and wayside hedges were just throwing out their first green shoots, and the air was full of the pleasant smell of moist earth. To me, at least, there was a strange contrast between the sweet promise of spring and the sinister quest upon which we were engaged. My companion sat in his front of the trap, his arms folded, his hat pulled down over his eyes, and his chin sunk upon his breast, buried in the deepest of thought. Suddenly, however, he started, tapped me on the shoulder, and pointed over the meadows. Oh, look here, said he. A heavily timbered park stretched upon, stretched up in a gentle slope, thickening into a grove at the highest point. From amid the branches there jutted out the grey gables in the high roof tree of a very old mansion. Stoke Moran, said he. Yes, sir, that be the house of Dr. Grimsby Rollart, remarked the driver. Oh, there is something, there is some building going on there. Oh, that is where we are going, said Holmes. "'There's the village,' said the driver, pointing to a cluster of roofs some distance to the left. "'Oh, but if you want to get to the house, you'll have to find it shorter to get over this stile, and so by footpath over the fields. There it is, where the lady's walking.' "'And that lady, I fancy, is Miss Stoner,' observed Holmes, shading his eyes. "'Yes, I think we had better do as you suggest.' "'We got off, paid our fare.' and the trap rattled back on its way to Leatherhead. "'I thought it as well,' said Holmes as we climbed the stile, "'that this fellow should think we had come here as architects, "'or on some definite business. "'It may stop his gossip. Oh, "'Good afternoon, Miss Stoner. "'You see that we have been as good as our word.' "'Our client of the morning had hurried forward to meet us "'with a face which spoke of her joy. Oh, "'I have been waiting so eagerly for you.' She cried, shaking his hand warmly. All has turned out splendidly. Oh, Dr. Roylott has gone to town, and it is unlikely that he will be back before evening. We have had the pleasure of making the doctor's acquaintance, said Holmes. In a few words, he sketched out what had occurred. Mrs. Stoner turned white to the lips as she listened. Oh, good heavens! He has followed me then. So it appears. Oh, he's so cunning that I... I never know when I am safe from him. What will he say when he returns? He must guard himself, for he may find that there is someone more cunning than himself upon his tracks. You must lock yourself up from him tonight. If he is violent, we shall take you away to your aunts in Harrow. 
Now we must make the best use of our time. So kindly take us at once to the buildings which we are to examine. 